Welcome to the Sheila Kamu Extractive Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Morgan Brazilian. Morgan is the director of the Pain Institute and professor of public policy at the Colorado School of Mines in the USA. Previous to that, he was lead energy specialist at the World Bank. He has over two decades of experience in the energy sector and is regarded by many as a leading expert in international affairs, policy, and investment. He is also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Morgan, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I look forward to our conversation today. Thank you, Sheila. It's a pleasure to be with you. Lovely. One of the things I, I thought I'd uh, focus on is commodity trading and, and critical uh, mineral demand. The World Bank, your former employer, estimates that uh, growth in demand for minerals will grow by up to a whopping 500%. So how has this, if at all, impact the commodity market? Yeah, that, that, I think that's perhaps one of the most important questions in this critical mineral space, uh, Sheila. The, the demand we're seeing now um, is certainly putting pressure on all kinds of markets. One of the difficult things in, in this critical mineral space overall is that it's not a homogenous group of things. So on the, as you know, on the critical minerals list in the United States, we have about 50 different minerals. The, in the U.S., the Department of Energy came out with a separate list, and that has 18 uh, minerals on it. The European Union has a list. Japan has a list. Canada has a list. Australia has a list, et cetera. Each one of those minerals has a, a, a rather unique set of stakeholders, uses, and markets and pricing mechanisms. And so it's it, it's very difficult to talk about them as one thing. And as we're seeing increased demand and, and political focus on several of these minerals and metals, uh, we're... we're also seeing um, the, the the frailty of some of the markets, and many of the markets for these things are very small. They are opaque. Uh, they do not have good price discovery. And as an example, um, earlier this year, the London Metals Exchange had to stop trading nickel for a couple weeks because uh, it. it of some short selling and some other issues, but it just showed how thin these markets were and how easily they could be disrupted. Um, so I think that's an ongoing problem and the demand increases are only uh, adding to it. Hmm. So uh, let's help the lay person. So you, you speak of the minerals not being homogeneous and that they vary. Uh, and, and that we have at least for the United States, we have a list for Europe, we have a list for Canada. Could you explain why we don't have one list? Yeah, that's that's a it, it's a it's an important question also. Um, so each of these jurisdictions that I mentioned has a different list because like like in all policy areas, uh, they approach uh, different sectors in different ways b between them. Now in the United States, uh, the list, the methodology for the list comes from a supply side focus, which means 
where do we get these things and where do we get these things from and how much are we dependent on them? So it's a sort of classic U.S. security supply side approach. But that's not too dissimilar to how the European Union does it or Japan. But the, there's a big difference in how Canada and Australia look at this issue. So they look at this issue as large exporters of these minerals and metals. And so their lists are more focused on what it would mean for the export and economic uh, revenues of their countries. And so the, the risks that these different jurisdictions are looking at are very different from one another. And the, the media coverage has largely been around minerals for batteries and largely batteries for electric vehicles. So if you've seen it in the newspaper, it's likely that you've seen discussion of things that go into lithium ion batteries like lithium and graphite and nickel and cobalt. And um, those are the ones that you would hear of the most, um, you know, in, in, in typical media. And then outside of those battery minerals, we hear a lot about copper. So those are the kind of things you'll, you'll hear about that all have to do with various aspects of energy systems and what are called energy transitions. Now, let me, uh, I mean, as you know, we, 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 one of the things that we also often talk about is speak of Africa as, uh, say, one region, though you and I know it minimally from a geological perspective, that can hardly be true. But if you were, for instance, to just take that on face value and you were thinking what minerals might be critical to Africa and why at this stage, what comes to mind, if anything at all? Yeah, so Africa has a really key role to play in critical minerals. And uh, uh, as you say, different different countries in different parts of Africa have very different um, focus areas. Um, so even uh, in the last uh, months, we've seen um, coup d'etats, say in uh, Gabon and um, Niger. And, you know, Niger has uranium, Gabon has other minerals and metals. And so uh, you're seeing some uh, issues around minerals and metals just in, in some of the conflicts that are taking place in, in certain parts of in certain countries in sub-Saharan Africa. But a lot of countries across the continent are looking at how to um, stake their claim into the uh, supply chain of critical minerals. And as an example, Tanzania has a, a, a project coming on line hopefully with uh, uh, around very high quality nickel and nickel is very important for batteries as I, I i mentioned and but these countries are largely not in arrangements with the united states for free trade agreements and so that is complicating some of their role in global supply chains and then the other complication is on the other side um china is making big investments in some of these countries uh, and regions um, as part of their supply chains for these critical minerals. And so, um, you know, as we know, Sheila, some of these countries are being torn uh, between these two 
huge economic superpowers and 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 that's very difficult and what they want to aim for of course is to stake their claim in the in the supply chain and bring in revenue and economic development to their countries in a sustainable way um you know also as we know that's not always easy but this is definitely top of mind for several african countries and 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 hopefully should should stay that way and what we'd like to see of course is that some of them um prosper because of their ability to to get these minerals or to process them yeah so i mean i think the geopolitics of of it uh based on uh, whether the United States looking at security or others looking at export are going to be a major uh, influencer. Uh, I always thought, Morgan, that uh, emerging market countries, especially in Africa, Elan advisedly think they have to think in terms of allegiance or alliance with China versus America or vice versa. Uh, where in effect they ought to be driven like the United States by enlightened self-interest. I- is that too simplistic a, a-, a view? <laughs> no, I-, I I don't think it is. Um, you know the the. I think I think a lot of the countries are being driven by their own self-interest with economic development as the core goal, and that's likely how it should be. Um, and the more they can do to work with with various of the OECD countries or the Western countries to get what they need in terms of investment and, and returns, um, as well as, as building manufacturing or, say, uh, refining in the case of critical minerals in, in, in the countries of, of Africa and, and, say, South Asia, et cetera, um, the better. So... I th- I think that's the 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 approach um, they should take is to see wh- where they can where they can play in these global supply chains, and where it can benefit their populations, and where those revenues can go to the things they prioritize, which is largely economic development. You make mention earlier quite rightly that uh, in the media, when most speak about critical minerals, they are really focusing on minerals necessary for. Uh, production of uh, battery storage capacity uh, and and the whole transition to clean energy. Assuming that this is the primary drive for most industrialized economies, what happens if uh, all the producers of minerals are also on this growth path? Does that mean everybody becomes their own markets? Who exports and who imports if all of us are looking to produce the same thing pretty much at the same time. Yeah, so luckily, because there are so many of these minerals that are critical to modern economies and where we're seeing demand increase, uh, different countries and different regions are finding uh, ways to enter the market in, 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 um, mm-hmm. to their benefit in, in different ways. In other words, there's a lot of openings for different kinds of mining minerals and then the refinement of those mining and minerals. And then keep in mind, Sheila, as you know very well, it, it would be nice to see some of the advanced manufacturing, um, which is, of course, the area where you have the most value add to the economy, come to developing and uh, developing economies as well. So not just the mining, um, but the 
the production of, of things like uh, batteries, uh, electric batter, uh, vehicle batteries, and even electric vehicles themselves. So, you know, what you want to do is move up that um, value chain just to the place where you have the most uh, benefit to your to your country's e- economy. Um, so, I, there is there is certainly competition in the space for some of these minerals, but at this point, because the demand is raising so quickly what we're seeing is the countries that are able to actually get these mines and per, uh, refining facilities permitted and built and financed and built um, are the ones that that are going to have the competitive advantage and so um, that's why the competition uh, between the United States and China is so interesting in the space because the Chinese um, tend to be much quicker in terms of investing and building large infrastructure, including mining and processing than we do in the United States. And so the developing economies are going to have to uh, look at that and see where they can have that competitive advantage. Hmm. I I mean, it's it's clear that uh, heavy minerals alone is not enough to uh, attract investment, especially downstream, because to your point, being quick off the mark, being competitive on price, quality, and other things is is equally important. But I, I'm also wondering, to what extent does proximity to the markets make a difference? Because to the extent that China has the minerals and China is feeding Chinese factories, you know, it's, it's logic that uh, that's an advantage. But what of African countries looking to reach markets like the United States? How much of the challenge of proximity to manufacturers uh, becomes an impediment? Well, I think, um, you know, if I understand the question, Sheila, I think the, it, well, let's be specific. In the, in the case of some African countries and some Asian countries, a hold up, the two holdups and the two uh, obstacles, at least in the electric vehicle materials, have been in some of the terms of the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. In other words, where the minerals, metals, batteries, and vehicles are built and sourced from um, has become a stumbling block for many uh developing economies. That's true for, say, Tanzania, as I mentioned. It's also true for Indonesia and nickel, both nickel finds. And uh, so in the case of Indonesia, you see a lot of investment by China and because they're able to go in there and don't have that that particular obstacle, this uh, trading partner, uh, official trading partner obstacle. And so they're investing heavily in Indonesia. I would haven't seen that yet to the same extent in Tanzania, at least the, the one project I'm aware of. So it depends on the relationship between the big players and the countries. And it, it also depends on the state of the diplomatic relationship between those countries and, uh, uh say the U S and China. Hmm. So you mentioned earlier uh, that uh, recent uh, military coups in Gabon, Niger, Mali, Burkina, etc., 
uh, may well play in, into the space of access or lack of access to critical minerals. In terms of those countries then wanting to trade uh, their minerals, what does it mean that they find themselves in what may seem to an investor an inherently unstable political environment? Well, it's no different, uh, Sheila, for investing in almost any area in those countries. So when the say the large financial institutions in Europe, the United States, the OECD countries um, look at their range of investments, um, they certainly see higher risk profiles, whether real or perceived in in develop in most developing economies. And and that's been true for a long time, as you know, and it's true across all sectors. Um in the extractives areas, they're they're they ha they have shown, or at least the big companies have shown an appetite for for making those investments, but of course not <laughs> Many of them haven't gone so well, and so, um, you know, the, the 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 crux now is to find pathways for companies and investments to to flow into these economies to to find ways to buy down some of the risk and the extra cost of capital that implies, and um, uh, help make discrete real investments that that can help that had direct help for the economic development, the GDP per capita, et cetera, for these uh, uh, developing economies. And as you know, and worked in for, for many years, that that's not always an easy ask. And uh, the multilateral development banks certainly have a role, but their scale is not sufficient to um, make all of those investments. And also their timeframes can be very long and, and difficult. So, that, that that question of finance and investment and risk uh, still plays a, a, a very crucial role in all of these decisions, and it will continue to. Um, there's no easy answers, of course, and um, but I think where we can have some focused effort on buying down the cost of capital and making using the public funds not just for co-investment but for risk buy down. Um, that that certainly could help or continue to help. Mm. So let me see if I understand you. What you're saying is true. There will be perception or uh, assessment of real risk. The truth of the matter is this region would already have been perceived on the higher end of the risk. And so the, the, the outcome is not likely that there's no investment. It's just how we cost the investment and how we mitigate it. Is that about right? Well, that, that's certainly one area of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, what you're seeing, say, in the energy space in a lot of developing economies is one of the largest hurdles is just the cost of capital. And that's true for a lot of infrastructure projects, including extractive projects. Um, and, you know, the, there's no there's no quick fix to, to, to changing cost of capital deltas because they're priced into very complex, huge markets. And some of it is perceived risk and some of it is real risk. And that money is fungible and could go to other investments. Um, so when you, when we clarify some of these, as I was saying, some of these um, state to state 
diplomatic uh, efforts, that can help quite a bit. And But in the meantime, what we've seen, at least from the U.S. perspective, is that uh, China is much more willing to make some of those investments or had been under uh, even before Belt and Road and through Belt and Road. Now it seems some of those investments are slowing, but that's a different matter about uh, China's economic uh, issues. So, um, yeah, I, I, I do think that the the risk, the focus on the risk piece uh, needs to be front and center. And it's it's very clear. We can see it very clearly in terms of cost of capital. So if, if one then uh, takes a look at the United States and China and their different approaches, the United States, for instance, has the Anti-Corruption Act. It has the Dodd-Frank Act. Etc. Is that uh, unhelpful to the United States at the time when China already uh, is considered way ahead of the curve in terms of uh, availability of uh, critical minerals? Well, it's certainly a, a pretty big issue, and China is well ahead on the area in general of critical minerals, and they're not standing still, which is something that's often mistaken uh, in, in certain policy circles, that they, they're not just waiting for others to catch up. They're making enormous investments all the time. And Indonesia is a good case of this, where we're seeing nickel. Indonesia sort of um, run very quickly up the, the, the producer list for nickel, for battery-grade nickel, um, because uh, in, in some large part by investments from China, and it happened very quickly. And I guess one of the, the main issues that these country, developing economies have is that, as I already said, the multilateral loans, as we both know, could be very slow. Um, the same is true for the investment by, say, the United States or Europe. The, the, the investment cycles can be very slow. So they're playing a, a, a game against a country that's willing to make much quicker decisions. Now, I'm not saying there's not complications with Chinese investment. There are. And some of that looks to be slowing as well, or already has slowed. Um, but certainly um, the pace, uh, the, the, the temporal issues are significant for these uh, uh, developing economies who are keen to both get on the supply chain and get their economies moving uh, as quickly as they can. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is uh, a slightly different question, and it focuses again on the United States and access to critical minerals as defined by the U.S. government itself. In the U.S., we also, while there's a drive towards uh, clean energy and a recognition that we need minerals to achieve that, there's also quite a lot of resistance by certain environmentalists in your uh, neighborhood in, in Nevada and other places, uh, mining is unwelcome. How does how do American policymakers make this point that not only do we need the minerals, but China is instant in steel? How how do policymakers make the argument to those who are reluctant to grant mining rights in their backyard? Yeah, well, that that is probably the main uh, issue. The this what we call the social license to operate is the main issue for the mining industry uh, in the United States, certainly. Uh, and and it's it's not insignificant, and it's a community by community set of decisions with a diverse set of stakeholders. 
Um, that includes Native Americans, uh, uh, importantly, as well as, um, you know, s small communities that, that have, uh, experience with extractives that, um, maybe have not had such a good, uh, um, experience with them to those that have had a good experience in terms of revenue and jobs. So that, that's very much, um, uh, top of mind in the United States, the Department of Interior released a major report on the topic of how to get moving on uh, permitting and licensing and revenue sharing and, and all those very detailed things at the federal level. Of course, in the U.S., like many places, um, a lot of that work is done at, at much smaller levels, local levels, municipal levels, state levels. And so we have a, a very complicated patchwork landscape of these rules that exist. And as you say, not everyone is, is thrilled to have these mines or, or processing plants in their backyard. Um, and that goes back to you know, hundreds of years of, of experience that needs to be grappled with. And so the, the challenge, and I think this is maybe the biggest challenges for the mining industry and, and, and the federal governments or, or various governments around the world to help change the narrative of, of mining, of minerals and metals to something that is supportive of a clean energy uh, transition, to, to be supportive of climate change goals, to be supportive of economic development, and that it can be sustainable, that it could be done well, um, et cetera. And, and changing that narrative won't happen overnight, but it's certainly a, a key thing that the industry is focused on. And, uh, hopefully that will continue to, 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 um, move and allow some of these projects to go ahead, but we're, 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 they're very slow in moving ahead, uh, at least in the United States. Yeah, you you are right. Uh, uh, as somebody who has been in the mining industry for some time, my sense is that at least in terms of the recognition of the contribution that mining makes and can make, uh, specifically to transition to cleaner energy sources, mining has never been in a better place. The question is whether or not, to your point, this uh, offers the right opportunity uh, to be able to shift the mindset of the public and change perceptions of mining by not just demonstrating value to transition to clean energy, but also value in other areas. But, but I'm inclined to think if mining in the mining industry cannot get it right now, I can't see that they will ever get it right again, but they do have to step up to the mark. L let me ask you another question, which is that, um, you know, it's all very well as recognizing the need uh, and the growth in demand. But presumably, if one ponders the advent of the secular economy, at some point, uh, the trading of raw materials starts to slow down. Is that the, the outlook in the, in the very, very long term? Um. Can, can you say that question one more time to me, Sheila, uh, just more pointedly? Sure. I guess I'm asking whether 
uh, we see the circular economy uh, reducing demand for raw materials in the long term, or is it just a pipe dream? Yeah, no. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, I think the discussion, when you're rightful to get to it towards the end of our conversation, is about, you know, recycling and circular economy issues and how um, that can affect um, demand uh, uh, for these things. You know, a lot of these minerals or several of these minerals are completely recyclable, like copper. And so, you know, one would think that we would have a focus on that, especially when you see higher prices. And it's true, um, you know, recycling rates are sort of slowly, very slowly getting better. Uh, they're much better in Asia, where the production of the batteries tends to be. So if you do have advanced manufacturing, what you tend to see is more of a focus on recycling because the recycled material can go into the manufacturing chain much easier, uh, co-located or closely located geographically. Um, right now, you see that much more in Asia than you do uh, in the West. Um, so the, there's positive signs that, that that can work. The the wider circular economy issues that have to do with, you know, everything from air to water to other materials. Um, I I think it's uh, the the right way to try to move things. Um, but at least in the short to medium term, you know, both recycling and circular economy are not going to um, radically alter the supply demand. Um, profiles uh, we're starting to see. That, that's fantastic. Well, uh, Morgan, that's all we had time for. Thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I enjoyed speaking with you, particularly that last point, that's true, the circular economy recycling, but that's not likely to move the needle in the short term. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Sheila. Always nice talking to you. Thanks a lot.